I worked on Capitol Hill for seven years. You know, I've seen a lot of things about politics and nothing compares with the corruption that is taken for granted here in Alabama. We didn't find out about the wiretapping until after the election had occurred. This was an infectious disease that had reared its ugly head and there was no inoculating us until we go through the pain. It's a strange place to launch a political career, but for many Alabama leaders, the first steps toward power point down to the basement. They lead underneath the frat houses at the University of Alabama, the same place you might expect to find bar games and beer pong tables. That's where members of a secret society called the Machine decide who will run the campus. Officially known as Theta Nu Epsilon, it's been called the most powerful fraternity in America. The machine controls the largest voting block on campus and handpicks student body presidents, honor society members, and homecoming queens. The group stirs up plenty of drama on campus, but it doesn't end there. Students anointed by the machine get a seat at the table. As representatives on the board of trustees, they sit shoulder to shoulder with governors, legislators, and CEOs. And they often become those people. The list of student government presidents starts with a former U.S. Senator. It includes governors, federal judges, and congressmen. I'm Amy Yerkinen, and you're listening to Greek Gods. Today we'll hear stories of subterfuge, spying, wiretapping, and violence that escalated into the early 90s until the SGA was finally suspended. In this episode, we're going to meet some current students at Alabama who are taking on the machine. Two of them are running for SGA president, vying to become the first woman of color to lead the student body. And I'm your co-host, John Archibald. I'm a columnist at AL.com and Reckon. The presidential race, like almost everything at the University of Alabama, is about race and history. Tradition, some would say. Others might call it a tradition of corruption. Before we dive into that history, let's meet the 2018 candidates for president of the Student Government Association. Price McGifford Jr. did not return messages requesting interviews, but a few details of his biography are available online. He's a Tuscaloosa native, his father owns a construction company, he belongs to a fraternity, Kappa Alpha, that was inspired by Confederate General Robert E. Lee. There are two other candidates in the race. So my name is Marissa Elena Navarro. I'm currently double majoring in international studies in Spanish with a minor in Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino studies. I'm a first-generation student from an immigrant family in a single-parent household. My name's Amber Scales. I'm a junior here at the University of Alabama, double majoring in public relations and theater with a minor in political science from Johns Creek, Georgia. Currently in SGA, I serve as the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I'm running to be the next SGA president. Amber is African-American and the president of Alpha Kappa Alpha, a traditionally black sorority. Marissa is Mexican-American and started the first campus organization for students and faculty interested in Hispanic culture and issues. I'm barely skimming the surface of either woman's achievements. The list goes on and on. But to get to the top office, both will have to beat the machine. 
So the machine is something I learned about early on. It's one of those things when you first hear about it, you can't understand the hold it has on our campus and on the state of Alabama, even sometimes nationally. Once you learn the scale of it that has existed on our campus since 1870 and has functioned through the Greek houses, first through IFC and the traditionally white male Greek houses, and then adding in um, white women, but kind of generally 8,000 people controlling a campus of 38,000. Like, that's mind-boggling to me. And the, the crazier part is how they have an effect on, you know, elections outside of our campus. So people think, oh, you know, it's SGA election, why should I care? Because these people end up your senators, they end up your representatives, they end up your governors. The, you know, it's real positions of power and they use our campus as a training ground. And if that's not the death of democracy, I don't know what is. It's easy to write it off as just stupid student politics, but it turns ugly often. Crosses have been burned and independents, GDIs as they're called on campus, say they've been beaten up, run off the road, fired from jobs, ostracized, and attacked because of their opposition to the machine. Ballots have been stuffed, whole runs of newspapers stolen, and a popular pizza joint ruined. The daughter of a governor, a member of a machine sorority, said she was attacked with a knife for daring to run for SGA president when she was not the anointed machine candidate. It has affected real-world elections and destroyed people and businesses. The machine has created generations of politicians in Alabama and political operatives who use the same dirty tricks in the real world that they learned in college. Michael Smith serves in the Student Government Association Senate alongside Marissa Navarro, one of the candidates for president. He's an independent and a vocal critic of the machine in columns for the student newspaper. Michael grew up in Illinois, one of the most corrupt states in the nation. He didn't expect to find a microcosm of that when he arrived in Tuscaloosa, but it didn't take long for him to realize who had power on campus. Well, you could tell how big the Greek community was in terms of how big their houses were. The mansions that the Greek system have here are unbeatable across any school I've ever been to. You know, Northwestern, the University of Illinois, Ohio State, there are a few small houses that just look like any other houses. These are completely different. And so even going into my freshman year here, I knew that there was a lot of power and a lot of money poured into the Greek community, but I had no clue about the corruptive power that something like the machine, a secret organization run behind closed doors, would have and my freshman year was really learning about how much power they truly did have. To understand the hold the machine has on campus, it helps to understand the role of Greek life. The University of Alabama has one of the largest Greek systems in the country. About a third of the student body belongs to fraternities and sororities, more than 10,000 students. The sorority houses loom as large as the academic buildings nearby, only prettier, much prettier, with fat columns, double and triple-decker porches, and detailed molding. They look like amped-up versions of the plantation homes that dotted the area before the Civil War. At the beginning of the year, thousands of prospective members file into Bryant-Denny Stadium for bid day, the moment when they find out the results of a week-long battery of sorority interviews and mixers. The women shriek as they find out which sorority offered a bid, then they stream out to the houses flanking the football stadium. It's a parade of underclassmen in Greek letters.
That's the public face of the Greek system. The machine is its hidden side. A photo from the early era of Theta Nu Epsilon shows the members of the group wearing stiff suits and black hoods. The guy in the middle cradles a human skull. Since its inception more than a hundred years ago, the group has never registered as an official campus organization. House reps don't publicly acknowledge the role they play in campus politics. That power hasn't necessarily come easily. The machine has been challenged in the past and even lost several elections in the 1970s and 80s. Some of the craziest stories about the machine come from that era. In 1976, after students elected Cleo Thomas, the first African-American SGA president in Alabama history, students lit crosses on the lawn of a historically black sorority. Birmingham attorney John Bolas beat the machine in 1983, and John Merrill, who is currently Secretary of State for Alabama, did it in 1986. Before all of them, in 1970, Alabama auditor Jim Ziegler beat the machine. It was the middle of the Vietnam War. Even the University of Alabama, one of the most conservative campuses in the country, wasn't immune from social unrest. Soon after his election, National Guardsmen killed four protesters at Kent State, touching off four days of protest in Tuscaloosa. Students burned down an empty ROTC building, occupied campus buildings, and ultimately forced a university lockdown. As the head of student government, Jim Ziegler helped negotiate the end of the chaos, but then faced his own battle against the powers that be. The student legislature was about 65% machine and 35% non-machine. Well, that was a problem waiting to happen. And about two months before I went out, they passed an impeachment resolution. They passed that, so I was impeached. People think that means you're removed. It doesn't. That's just charged. Then it has to be tried before the university court used to be called the student court. So they threw it out. Well, the night that I was cleared, my room in Mallet Hall uh, burned down. I mean, it burned some kind of good. And um, they never have arrested anybody or come up with any theory about uh, what happened. And by this time, I and my supporters were so irritated by the, the lack of cooperation from the machine-dominated legislature that we maneuvered my term of office and the election for my successor so that I served 13 months of a 12-month term just to be honored. Jim Ziegler won in 1970, followed by Cleo Thomas in 1976 and Jerry Devaney in 1978. Then John Bolas won in 1983 and John Merrill in 1986. A stunning string of victories against the machine, which had held power without interruption between 1936 and 1963. John Bolas is not involved in politics anymore, at least not as a candidate. Part of the reason why goes back to his 1983 campaign, which launched an FBI investigation. Before he ran for president, he lost a race for SGA Senate. It was his first brush with the machine. Here's John Bolas. I was one of, I guess, 22 candidates for 16 seats, and I worked very hard and didn't get elected. And it seemed like there were a lot of people who really didn't have to do much who got elected. And I started learning about the machine at that point, that there had been a slate of candidates, and, you know, those machine candidates got elected, and the ones that weren't, you know, did not get elected. 
As he contemplated a run for student body president, he encountered another independent candidate who was running on an anti-establishment platform that included a proposal to abolish the SGA. He agreed to drop out of the race and support John if he took a hard line against the machine. Well, John, you've got to promise me this. You can't be afraid to call them out. You know, you, you've got to be able to stand up and tell everybody that it exists, that it's real, and that it's not a good thing. During his campaign, a supporter created a satirical newspaper called the Alabama Madman that took on corruption in the SGA. Local restaurant owner Fran Vaselli bought ads in the newspaper. The Crimson White wrote its own expose on the machine, which got snatched from newsstands overnight. In response, the paper published a special edition on the eve of the election. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of electricity around this. Now, what none of us expected as we were planning for this election was that Coach Bryant would pass away the day before the election. I think that was January 26 of 1983. And so we have all this excitement for the election. I'm going around to different places on campus doing the final campaigning and then we hear about Coach Bryant. And at that point, I was crestfallen and thought, you know, this is reality. You know, here's our icon, the greatest coach to ever coach at Alabama. He's passed away and people are not going to care about this LSGA election. So I really thought that I was sunk at that point, but, you know, so be it. But the next day, we had a record turnout in the election and I won the election. And uh, it was it was really a, a great coming together of people who wanted it to happen and, and made it happen. John's joy at winning the election was short-lived. He soon made a frightening discovery. We didn't find out about the wiretapping until after the election had occurred. And my roommate at the time, my high school best friend, and I lived in a house on 13th Street he was walking around the side of the house, and he's, he's a civil in, he was in civil engineering. He's now a civil engineer. But the guy paid attention to everything, and he knew how things worked, and he saw some wires running from the house into the leaves and thought, well, that's odd, and it went into the telephone box on the side of the house. So he started tracing it, and we lived in a house that had a backyard that bumped up to an alley near the railroad tracks. And uh, when he got to the end of the wires, there were two plugs that would have plugged into a tape recorder that you could monitor from, and there were a bunch of beer cans around it. And so we took that in, and you know, I talked to the folks at the Crimson White. We reported it through the university administration, and the FBI quickly became involved. Two students were charged by authorities, but they took a deal, and the case was sealed, Bolas said. Their identities never became public. Earlier this year, someone leaked a document alleged to be the machine constitution. It addressed the wiretapping episode. The rep that did this later acknowledged it was a mistake, the document read. Now, you feel violated at that point that we just all have certain expectations of privacy. And again, it's not like I was talking about any critical secrets on the telephone, but, but you just know right and wrong and that that's wrong. I didn't know that the FBI would get involved, but I certainly wanted to report that to the appropriate authorities. The dirty tactics continued for another decade. Here's Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, who ran against the machine and won in 1986. He married young and lived with his wife while attending school. 
we had an answering machine. We had threats that were called into our phone number from time to time. This is before people had cell phones. So you weren't getting personal calls on your phone, but we would get voicemail messages where they would make threats against me, but even more importantly against Cindy, my wife. Uh, we had the air let out of our tires. We only had one vehicle at the time, and they would let the air out of our tires, which was very inconvenient, but things like that would occur from time to time. As the campaign wore on, things escalated and police got involved. A couple of guys actually broke into my office in the Ferguson Center and tried to find information related to our campaign and what we were attempting to do as far as strategy was concerned. And they were doing it late at night. And I actually found them by accident because there was a young man who wanted to use the typewriters that we had in the Ferguson Center, in the typing center that you could go and use. And of course it was after hours so he couldn't get access to them. And I told him I would meet him there. And as I went by the window, I saw that my office door was open and I knew I had locked it when I left earlier in the day. And I found them in my office rambling through my papers and trying to find things. It just so happened at that time that the Crimson White was located in the Ferguson Center as well. They were just down the hall. And so we were able to go get some of the reporters that were there and photographers. And they came down, took pictures of those um, people that were invading our privacy. And then they wrote a front page story, the Crimson White, about the news of the day, which was this senator and this other young man who was a member of Machine Fraternity were in my office with uh, impure attitudes and impure actions as they were trying to find something related to our campaign. The break-in actually helped John Merrill win the race. One of the guys that was there with me was a big guy and he, uh, he kept them from being able to leave as the reporters were coming down to the office and, uh, and, and called them red-handed and did a, an expose on what they were actually doing and why they were doing it. And it obviously, I think it helps sway the election. The long history of the machine includes many victims who have tried to challenge the system. One of the most famous is Fran Vaselli. He had a pizza business in Tuscaloosa in the 80s and 90s. It's hard to imagine Bama without Bama Binos. It was everywhere. If you wanted pizza at the University of Alabama in the 1980s, that's what you got. No Domino's, no Pizza Hut. It was as Alabama as houndstooth. That it has gone because of school politics and spite is amazing. And to a lot of people, terrifying. I met with Fran at Jeremiah's Garden, a community garden on the grounds of Catholic Family Services in Tuscaloosa. It's a clear day and the birds are out. Fran was mucking out a small chicken coop while other volunteers cleared out winter produce to make way for blueberry and blackberry bushes. For the interview, he led me back to an overgrown tennis court where we crossed paths with a garden cat. Come here. Is this a resident cat or just yeah, a right. visitor? Definitely. Yeah, we have a resident dog. Come here. Come here. Come on. Oh, no. oh. you're with me. <laughs> <laughs> Usually cats can tell I'm a cat person, oh, so they come well, right up to me. When you lived in the garden, 
when a, any animal lives in a garden, uh, or put this way, they were to come here. They had to be uh, thrown away, so to speak. We had a dog that was thrown away, and she was very cautious of us. Took us, Louie in the red dress, red um, shirt, and I worked on the, the puppy, the dog. And she was a puppy at the time. She's no longer here. She's with a family. Being thrown away, it's an experience Fran Vaselli knows something about. Before he found his way to the garden with its cats, dogs, and chickens, he ran one of the most prominent businesses in town, Bamabino Pizza. At its height, the business had four locations, a food truck, and a close relationship with the university and its fraternities and sororities. He became a community fixture, Yankee accent and all. But before all that, Fran moved to Tuscaloosa from Buffalo for an opportunity that had nothing at all to do with pizza. I worked with a YMCA, and I had a friend with down here at the Tuscaloosa Y, who was executive director, and he invited us to come down. And we came down in, in 75, and we accepted the offer, bought a home, and a year and a half later, I was let go because I guess, well, I know I believe that all people should go to the Y, and there was still a strong stigma of they have their Y and we have ours. He's talking about race. By the time he came to Alabama, formal Jim Crow laws were gone, but the wall segregation built still kept people apart. Fran has a wife and four children who were all small at the time. They had to find a way to make ends meet. For a while, they collected cans for recycling. It was hard and humiliating. Then he found work managing a medical supply company. He wasn't digging through the trash anymore, but Fran soon found the limits of his salary. I promised my kids I'd take them to Disney World, but there's no way I was going to take them to Disney World on what I was making, so I got a second job, part-time job, in a pizza place called Pinocchio Pizza. And I worked for there a year or so, and uh, the manager left, and they asked me if I would manage, and they asked me how much I wanted, and, and, and health care and all this stuff. And I took that, worked there for until August of 1980, and started our own pizza place called Bamabino Pizza in the kitchen of a bar. And when I say we work cheek to cheek, I'm not talking about the ones between we, on the outside of where you stick your tongue out. We were close, and we had a very good time. Unsurprisingly, he found an eager market among the town's college crowd. Most of the big pizza chains at the time hadn't discovered Tuscaloosa, and Bamabinos filled the void. On game days, the business sold hundreds of pizzas. The company's complimentary plastic cups, included on all orders of large pizzas, became ubiquitous at frat parties. From the start, Fran wanted a name that would resonate with the students. He doesn't take credit for coming up with Bamabinos, a clever mashup of Italian-American and University of Alabama icons, but he does credit it for much of the company's success. Bamabinos even adopted the same mascot as Alabama, an elephant. Bamabino was a name that a number of people around our kitchen table, editors, of, uh, uh, writers for the Tuscaloosa News and, and people like that sat around our table and their spouses. And we talked about, what should we name it? Uh, baby Bama, Babino, Baby Bama. And then two people made the suit, 
just with the cost of the materials. And a person made, carpenter made the tables that I used. And a person made the sign outside that we used. It was a community project. And, and it grew like nobody's business. It went from, we went from one oven to two ovens within a few weeks. His success wasn't just financial. He became a community fixture. Businessman of the year, certificates from Congress, the whole nine yards. All for a guy in a homemade elephant suit. The stores continued to expand, but Fran soon began wondering if he could make more inroads in the community. He found opportunity at Bryant-Denny Stadium, home of the Crimson Tide. Instead of waiting for hungry football fans to come to him, he figured out a way to come to them. The Rolling Pizza Party was brought into, it was the first food truck in probably Alabama, maybe the Southeast. In, 90, in 81, I found this musician that had this big truck that he would, and it was a big, big band. They would haul all his stuff around, and it was an old Mercedes truck. Mercedes. <laughs> That's the only Mercedes I've ever owned. <laughs> but it was cheap, because <laughs> I am cheap. <laughs> um, and we got it, and my mind played with it. We made a rolling, Bama Bino rolling pizza party. And the, the elephant was on both sides of it, and, ye and ye yellow and all the background, and on the back of it, the living end. Uh, and it worked really well. We went all over, we went to the games. We were, for two years, we delivered 600 pizzas to the stadium and literally sold, sold out of them every game. And when Alabama came to the night before, the eve of the uh, homecoming. We sold all 600 pizzas and we had to make them all through the night and do 600. We, we had a hell of an income um, and we lost all that. At the same time in the 1980s, Fran never thought the students or the community would turn on him. He was making good money and pouring it back into the business. At the height of his success, his son enrolled at the University of Alabama and became involved in campus politics. It was a strange time at Alabama, a stretch of almost two decades when the machine enforced its will through violence, threats, and dirty tricks. We were up to two and a half million dollars a year on pizzas. Um, and it wasn't until my son, Joe, came on, Joey we call him, came on the scene he became a senator in his sophomore year and his junior year. No, freshman year, junior year. Freshman year, sophomore year. And then junior year, he ran for president. And that's when it hit the fan. Fran's son, Joey, had made the fateful decision to run for SGA president. According to news articles, vans circled campus during the campaign, carrying banners that read, Boycott Bamabino Pizza. People who worked on Joey's campaign were attacked and he and his family received bomb threats. In an article after the election, Joey said he found out fraternity and sorority members were fined if they didn't vote for the machine candidate. The election came down to the wire. The night before the election, one of his campaign people was called up and her life was threatened. 
and the mothers from Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, I know someplace in there, flew down to talk to the president about this behavior of the people for our press, for a election, a kid's election. This, is this important? Yeah, it is this important. And we were called up that night and said some, you know, some things were said to us by some very alcoholic driven young people who called my wife and myself some painful names. And at the same time, our business started to notice that the 26 fraternities and sororities that are part of the machine were no longer buying pizzas from us. And to, uh, and that was, we were able to define that because we had our receipts, all the materials. And we knew that they didn't buy from us. But what we didn't understand, what I didn't understand initially is that the other parts of the community were failing too. And so it wasn't just the kids. It was the attitude of the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, uh, the relatives, the people. And so this was an infectious disease that had reared its ugly head and there was no inoculating us until we go through the pain of realizing that we're destroying ourselves for what we think is the good of ourselves. The decline in business from Greeks coincided with other things that hurt the business. Chains like Pizza Hut and Domino's started offering delivery, which cut into profits. But Fran also noticed that he stopped getting calls about university events he catered in the past. Joey Vaselli ran for SGA president in 1989. Fran Vaselli closed Bama Bino's in 1991. In a little more than two years, millions of dollars in revenue dried up. Fran and his wife took on debt to keep the business going, but eventually had to let it go. Fran started to hate the machine. And the anger came when I watched my wife being hurt by this. The people, I, we had 200 employees. We had to start letting people go. We had to cut profit sharing. We had to cook, it wasn't a profit. We had to cut health insurance because uh, we gave everyone who worked with us an opportunity to have health insurance. When they closed the last location of Bama Bino's, Fran and his wife faced daunting debts. Fran found another job at a community college and spent years repaying creditors. At one point, he took home a little more than $125 after all the debts and bills were paid. Once again, he needed to start over in Tuscaloosa. The most difficult thing was when my wife told me when we closed the door for the last time was, Fran, I know this doesn't make sense, but I think we're going to be put in prison. Police are going to come and get us because we owe so much money. She was the bookkeeper. She's the one that understood what we really owed. And no, it didn't make sense, but the pain was there. Fran had to reinvent himself. A lifelong Catholic, he turned to the church and became ordained as a deacon. He became involved in outreach programs to juvenile detention facilities. At one event, his old life collided with his new one in an unexpected way. As part of the program, he talked about the hardest thing he had ever experienced, the boycott and closure of his restaurants. Well, Sunday, we went in and this man came up to me, he was at my table, and um, the man came up to me on Sunday and said, I need to, ask, need to talk to you, I need to talk to you. 
I put him off for a moment, then I said, okay, we, we can talk. What you need? He said, you... I'm gonna ask you forgiveness. I said, well, all the things that I've done in my life. Yeah, I have to forgive you. He said, no, you don't understand. I was the president of the machine. And I'm asking you forgiveness because I didn't realize we did all this. Well, you know, until you get to know a person once again, and to know how they're how they walk. You really can't judge them. Fran watched from the sidelines when the machine's intimidation tactics crossed a crucial line in 1993, when a masked intruder allegedly broke into an apartment and assaulted independent presidential candidate Minda Riley, the daughter of Bob Riley, who would later become governor. In an article about the attack published in the Crimson White, her injuries included a golf ball-sized bruise, a busted lip, and a knife wound on the side of her face. The assault occurred when Minda was home alone. She told her brother, who took her to the police station and the student health center, according to news reports. She filed a police report. Her brother and campaign manager blamed the machine. The university offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. No one was ever arrested. Former students and an internal document allegedly leaked from the machine said she might have staged the assault. It was a pivotal moment for the SGA, but one that remains shrouded in mystery. Minda Riley did not respond to my requests for an interview. She hasn't talked about the incident in the years since. Administrators called off SGA elections for three years. When they came back, the machine returned to dominance. For almost 30 years, no independents won at Alabama. Since then, the group started to move away from violent hardball tactics. I heard that they had a major impact in not just um, the university's politics, but the statewide politics. And at first, I didn't really think that they were that influential. And I still don't think that they're that influential. They just know how to unite and to put up a strong front. Up next, we'll meet some people on the other side, members and former members of the machine. No, it wasn't the machine that got me elected. Okay, it was my campaign team of my friends that organized. This series was produced by Amy Yerkinen and co-hosted by John Archibald for Reckon. Our theme song is Where the Cottonmouths Hung by The Delicate Cutters. Our logo was designed by Robin Hammontree. You can find all four episodes and other material on iTunes, Google Play, and at al.com slash Reckon. If you like this podcast, you can follow Reckon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and sign up for our weekly newsletter.